0: Hey, everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM. That creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlists of clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music. uh, Or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Feral, and that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play, and be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke. Dot com slash sleep with me. That's Spoke.com slash sleep with me. Check it out, uh, and I'll see you in Golden Gate Park at Stowe Lake. Bye.
1: Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T-L-D. You get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use a promo code Feral and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. dstld.com Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. If you like my theme music, that's by a band called Les Blanks. Uh, go to Lesblanks.com, check more of their stuff out. They're good. If you haven't listened to my show before, it is just what the title implies, that it is a conversation with Matt Dwyer, me. And it's just, uh, just kind of a free-formed, open conversation where we explore many ideas and uh, let it lead us to wherever it may. Uh, and this episode, I'm very excited, this is part two of a year at the wheel where I talked to Shane and Amy Bugby about their year-long road trip where they left on the road with $180 in their pocket. Uh, last week's episode was with Shane. This week we get Amy's perspective on it, and uh, they, uh, you know, they hit the road to document uh, the things that were going on with Americans, What, what, what were on their mind, what were on their mind, <laughs> what was on their mind. And it's a it's a very fascinating book and uh, documentary that they made out of this, and I really uh, it's really great. And both of these conversations are really great. Um, you could buy the book and the movie at uh, usaodd.com, and they uh, they talked to former CIA assassins. Uh, they worked odd jobs. Amy tells a great story about um, one of her odd job experiences. And uh, she also tells in some really cool stuff about uh, what she learned about our our great environment here in America. Uh, there is one uh, cameo during this show. Uh, Charlie would not my dog <laughs> would uh, kept moaning and making noises. So you probably can hear that in the background. I couldn't do couldn't do much to get him quiet. So that's uh, I don't know if I have to pay him now because he's part of the show. I don't know. A little attention whore, my dog. A little. Attention, whore, my dog Charlie. But um, this is a really great conversation. And remember to check out USA. uh, Com for about the, there's trailers and, and uh, books, and there's going to be a comes out on Inauguration Day. So uh, please, I implore you to enjoy this conversation. <laughs> sort of this sort of, uh, uh, sort of spur out of a lot of uh a lot of uh... you guys were in a lot of turmoil right there was a lot of upheaval in your lives,
2: oh yeah, for sure for sure
1: because <laughs> your your <laughs> father was ill,
2: right yeah, I mean actually the whole the whole downward spiral that led us to wandering around the country for a year started, um, we decided to sell our house on the south side of Chicago and move to New York City. And then um, like, oh, two weeks before we were going to move, my dad had a stroke. And so I went up there to see him thinking, I had no clue what a stroke was. I thought it was like a heart attack. You know, you go visit him, he'll be fine in a few days or something like that. And uh, he was not fine at all like he was doing really bizarre things he was like a like a child or something he was walking around and everything like fine but he was just really bizarre and so everyone in the family was like oh yeah we're gonna go we've got to get back to work and I'm like this guy can't be left alone so thus began uh this turmoil of moving to a very small town in Minnesota which Shane was really adamant opposed to because he felt like what we did for a living would uh would you know jeopardize our (laughs) safety and well being (laughs) which it did and um that was is it
1: ellie or eli ely they call it ely minnesota
2: ely minnesota yes it's it's the entrance to the boundary waters so People are like, oh, yeah, I lived in a small town, too, but they don't understand how remote this place was. If you wanted to go to McDonald's, let's say, you got in your car and you drove for 70 miles to get to McDonald's. Whoa, how
1: many people were in this town?
2: 3,000, something like that, 3,500.
1: I'm guessing it was all whitey?
2: Yeah, yeah, in fact, the local <laughs> community college had had brought in some uh, inner-city... Minneapolis kids to play football on their football team, and it was a big deal. Like you'd see them in the grocery stores, and being from Chicago, I'm like, "Hey, how you doing?" And but other people who were from Ely would be glaring them down, like they really couldn't leave the campus and stuff. I mean, it was a. I guess that should have been hint. <laughs> what, is <this laughs> like,
1: what, is it like it's like probably people who were like in their fifties seeing black people for the first time?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Holy
1: fuck this a it's such a such a bizarre concept. Like for big city people, but it's like how do you how does someone live that way and be like, nah, I'm just good with white people in this dumb small town?
2: <laughs> you know, it was like the nineteen fifties there. I mean we thought we thought it was really um charming at first because while we were unpacking, moving into this house we rented The the school marching band came down the street and so we're like, oh, look how cute it is here. But we didn't think about all the other things that came along with that kind of stuff. You know, it's funny. It's so remote up there. I thought a lot about like the kids who grew up there going off to college and a lot of them would go to Minneapolis or whatever to go to college. And I thought, my God, they're just going to get eaten alive. You know, they have no.
1: Probably have a mental breakdown.
2: Yeah, I mean, after living in such a remote place, because it's the middle of the Superior National Forest, it's the entrance to the Boundary Waters, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a billion acres of wilderness, and like planes can't fly over it, and uh, there's no motors. You can only canoe up in the Boundary Waters, so you get all these back-to-nature people up there and stuff, people who want to camp or fish.
1: Why can't and- you fly, just because they want to keep it like serene, or is it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a no-fly zone, no planes, only Forest Service planes can fly up there when stupid tourists go up there and, like, think that they can conquer the woods and then they fall and break their leg, which happened quite often.
1: Uh, yeah, I always liked those people who are like, I'm going to go out in the wilderness. like, you don't know fucking, like, I can't, I get nervous in the park. <laughs> it's like That's more, more wilderness than I need.
2: Oh, yeah, these city people, they would come up there, like, Shane and I lived there for two years, we ventured into the Boundary Waters once or twice, like right at the edge, you know, just for like a walk with the dog. We weren't going to go in there and canoe and stuff. And you would get these people that would just get like they lose a couple people a year. They would just never be seen again. You know, maybe three, four people a summer would just up and <laughs> disappear. I kind of wish
1: more people would just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I got a long list of of people that should disappear.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. And- yeah.
1: So, and then things kind of uh as w- we know from the prior interview, things kind of took a took a big like they ran you out of town for some of your past activities oh
2: boy, yeah. did they yeah Was they it- sent out someone sent out an anonymous letter saying that because we had Shane had had the brilliant idea to start a soda pop company because up there they did a the big the big thing in town was this blueberry festival that happened every July and like 50,000 people or whatever came. And so Shane thought if I can get a quarter off of 50,000 people, we'll make it through the winter. So, cause you know, my, my dad didn't have any money to, you know, fund us moving up there to help him out. It was just kind of like a, like this obligation, I guess. And so, Like, he said he would fund it, but he had no capability to do that. So Shane started uh, Ely Soda, and um, so we were, you know, we were, like, fitting in great. Like, everybody loved the soda, and all the stores and restaurants were carrying it, and we'd go into places, and they'd be like, hey, it's the soda people. And and so we got uh, fooled into believing we fit in somehow, and then somebody what we found out later who um, somebody sent out an anonymous letter to all the businesses and churches in the town saying we were devil worshipers and we were funneling, as the letter said, we were funneling our soda profits into devil worship. And then it had a list of our websites, you know, cause Shane had radio free Satan at the time. And, um, I had a website called TV is God, which was like a sarcastic, thing about television and they were all listed there so wow, the next wow. thing we knew our soda pop wasn't on any store shelves and um like i'd go into the grocery store and the whole place would just go silent and uh i was in the grocery store one day and this lady came up who i was an acquaintance with and started praying for me in oh. the produce oh. department I mean, it got really bad like Like the art, like it was, they were kind of trying to be an artist community, you know, as um, small towns in the middle of nowhere want to do. And um, like the artists turned on us, like they wouldn't stand up for us because they were scared of what that meant for them, you know, so it was like, even people we were friends with turned on us.
1: Oh boy. (laughs) So, and then uh, you went back to Chicago and sort of planned the, uh... That's where you started planning the road trip, right?
2: Well, no, we moved to Los Angeles because Shane got into directing a porno, and so we were going
1: to do porn. Oh, that's right. That was your fuck you to uh, that. that, that
2: time. <laughs> Our, yeah, so Shane left for six weeks in the winter and went and shot uh, Club Satan. And then, um, that's and funny then I picked- saw
1: him when he was here, and he never, he didn't say, like, hey, I'm making a porn because, you know, I'm a trained actor. and. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you think you'd want some real actors in there, but whatever.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you would have loved that movie. Have you seen it?
1: <laughs> no, no, I've seen photos. Of-
2: it was nominated for an AVN award for most outrageous sex scene. So.
1: What what enta- what goes on in that sex scene?
2: Um, the devil and the, I think it's five um, secret chiefs. They. Uh, They have this ritual with this young girl who's coming over to the dark side, and so she eats all of their asses. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: That's right there. That's why I don't want to get involved with Satan, because I I don't think I could do that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty crazy, but it was award-nominated. In
1: Catholic church, you just got to blow a couple priests. That's a lot easier than... uh, That's a little... (laughs)
2: Yeah right. Yeah, so so Shane uh, Shane dedicated that movie at the end when the credits roll. It said to Ely with all of my love and all of my hate.
1: <laughs> it's too too bad. Did he send copies to people?
2: <laughs> um, I'm sure people saw it. I don't know if he sent copies. I don't
1: know. Yeah, I'm sure they kind of out of their own weirdness keep tabs on you now and again just to be like, what are those evil people doing?
2: Oh sure, sure. I have a few friends on Facebook that are people up there.
1: Oh, you yeah. you don't you, you like you let them follow your bullshit. Not, I don't mean your bullshit, but I mean, you know what I
2: mean. Yeah, yeah, I don't really. You know what? At this point, I don't really care. My father passed away in two thousand ten, and so it's not like I have to worry about anything. You know, if they want to be my friend, I guess that's that's their problem. You know. And what was because
1: uh, you have you had the manifesto for your your travels. I I have it here. I don't know but uh what what was the what was the what made you guys come up with the theme or the the manifesto for this like what inspired that aspect of your of your travels there was one that really stuck out to me and i can't now i can't find the fucker
2: uh uh um well i think all those things were points that were just really bothering us like um oh uh, and some of them were just funny i think uh what is it That's... there was a line from taxi driver try to be a person like other
1: people. <laughs> uh, yeah, but and you said the, you say the thing in there about uh, if the world is crumbling that you wanted to document, and I guess that was uh, you because that was right before Obama got into office. Right, things were pretty bad, and I think people were pretty terrified that if uh, McCain got in, we were going to be deeper fucked.
2: Well, when we started our project, I mean, that wasn't even, it was, an, it was going to be the start of an election year. It was 2007, so they, we didn't know who the candidates were going to be or anything, but when we were living in L.A., because we lasted there like three or four months, we really, it, it just wasn't for us. Well, maybe the porn industry just wasn't for us, but it was like a lot of people like uh-oh, we're going to get together and, and do this. And then you'd meet up, you know. Let's have a meeting, and then it was like, oh well, let's have a meeting about the meeting we just had. And so it was really frustrating for us.
1: I've been doing that for eleven years. <laughs> I'm amazed I, I'm not gray and bald with this bullshit.
2: I don't know how anything gets done in Los Angeles it's with the, it being like that.
1: I am too. I mean, it's just it's astounding.
2: It was outrageous. So we were like, to hell with this. But we lived. Um, we lived in like. Laurel Canyon, and we would go up to the Studio City, what was it, Safeway or something, to shop. And it was amazing to me how many people were living in their cars. Like, you could tell people were living in their cars. And then we went to go look at the tar pits one day. We wanted to see the tar pits while we were there. And um, we took a wrong turn, and we went down the street that was like a tent city. Like, it was literally houses made out of tarps four deep and, like, kids were playing in the street and stuff, you know, and it was obvious the kids in the street lived in these tower tents. I mean, it was like a third-world country. We were just like, how can this be happening in Los Angeles? I mean, I don't know. It just didn't seem like – I mean, there's homeless in Chicago and stuff, but not, not like that. I guess maybe because it's cold there, they're not as visible. I don't know.
1: It Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty – I mean, I remember the first time I saw that down in downtown LA, and and then uh, even on Riverside Drive, it would just be like rows and rows of like shitty RVs that people were clearly living in. Right. uh, It's just, and it's you can't help but wonder of like, how the why the fuck is this happening? Like in our supposedly great society.
2: Yeah, it just didn't, it was so bizarre, and maybe it was from coming from this small town where we had gotten used to everyone, you know, smiling and, you know, things running in a certain manner. If someone had a problem, you know, people were there to help, or I guess you went in the woods and died, but just going back into a city, it was so, so ugly. It was so incredibly ugly, and then I had read an article on the internet about this guy in Arizona or someplace who had all this land. And um, he was inviting homeless people to come live there and pitch tents and stuff. And so the city arrested him and put him in jail because they said he couldn't let people pitch tents, even though he had like 40 acres or something. And uh, I was telling someone about the article I read, and they were like, well, send me a link. Like, they didn't believe me. And so I couldn't find the link, so I just did a quick Google search of Homeless Camps, Com Arizona, something. And, like, hundreds of articles like that came up. Like, I never found the original article I'd read. I mean, it was, like, it was shocking what was, you know, what was going on at you know, and, and I continues. It continues to get worse in America. Like now, homelessness is just kind of an accepted thing. You know,
1: it's it's amazing that it's like here's a guy who wants. Like, I don't even understand how that's illegal. Like, why can't people? It's his fucking property. It's so bizarre to me.
2: Yeah, it was really bizarre. And then to see that there were hundreds of articles like this, where people were opening up their property to homeless people, because Shane and I had driven through. Las Vegas on our way to Los Angeles from Minnesota. And we went to old Vegas and there was an empty field. And there were literally thousands of people sleeping in this field, camped out, just laying there on blankets or whatever. And so just seeing how bad things were, because this was before they were talking about the economy was bad. The news was still saying the housing market was booming. And we knew it wasn't. You know, because we had just sold our house and we sold it for way less than, than it, we were paying taxes on, you know. Like, like we knew things were getting bad, I guess, because being entrepreneurs, you're kind of the first ones to feel it, maybe, because we're such a small business. You know, and when you're selling, like, obscene books and stuff like that, and people stop buying those items, you really notice. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: so. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it makes you... Yeah. It makes me more suspicious of the media, because it's like, why the fuck are you... And not not to be like Johnny Weirdo, but it's like, and our government, because it's this like, why are you hassling people who are trying to help solve problems and, and keep people from knowing about it? It's really infuriating.
2: Yeah, I mean, in spring, in summer of 2007... They were still pushing the housing boom. They were still telling people, you know, oh, the American dream, own your own home, get these low-interest loans, when people were already losing their homes left and right, and no one was reporting on that, and then and then the economy was going under, and nobody was talking about that, and so that's really how Shane and I decided, you know, if, if the news wasn't going to document it, then we would. And. By the end of our trip, you know, the, of course, the economy had pretty much collapsed and uh, and they had to admit that there was, the whole housing bubble had burst. But it took them a good long time to admit that, you know.
1: Yeah. Oh, so when you went out on the road, too, I mean, it was it was interesting to me how many people, I mean, talked about the same things because the media doesn't kind of doesn't give you that point of view of how people are pissed off about the war. You never really hear much about that
2: no and if you do it's always crazy people like white people with dreadlocks or whatever <laughs> dirty hippies and stuff
1: yeah i noticed recently and this is what really has been bugging me is that the i found out that the westboro baptist church is 40 fucking people and yet they get more press than like you never hear about the occupy stuff at all or any of any anti-war but it's like these fucking hateful pricks who aren't re- like you was like, oh that's probably like thousands of people. It's like probably some big crazy church. And it's like, it's forty people. Go fuck yourselves.
2: Oh, I know. Well they have a good PR person, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's just like to me it's like a news created reality show.
2: But all that's the news is so fake. You know, the T V ministry are are my T V religion. That's one of our tenets is that the news is lies. Because like I can remember, oh, a couple of years ago, before they started legalizing same-sex marriage, there was a march in Washington, D.C. of something like half a million gay rights people, and it got no coverage at all. Like, no news was there. In fact, on, uh, like, one of these joke TV shows, like The Daily Show or whatever, they showed the news from that day, and they're like, no one was covering this. But they were covering this, and there's a lady standing in an empty field going, two hours ago, there were 200 Tea Partiers in this field protesting. But they were all gone, and she's reporting on 200 people versus half a million, you know?
1: That's infuriating. Let's burn something down.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It is infuriating.
1: Was it like, and you were talking to a lot of people, like, you were talking to a lot of Christians, and, and I was, at least in, I mean, you don't, didn't you ever just get, like, pissed off at people, or did you, because I wouldn't be able to, I'd be like, I would just immediately be like, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> I'm impressed that you guys were able to be so open-minded with these people.
2: Well, I think we were lucky in a couple ways. Um... We had had a friend in, on the south side of Chicago that was a devout Christian this, um, who was our neighbor, and she was amazing. She was like a really great lady. She was, I don't know, 74 or something, and we really loved her. And so that kind of gave us a little um, uh, acceptance and understanding of Christians, maybe that there could be actually true, true Christians that followed, like, whatever the teachings are but i'm at a i'm at a disadvantage with that i was raised atheist so my parents hated religion and they hated especially christianity so i grew up in a totally different world than you know 99% of america so stuff about christianity was just so foreign to me the whole thing it was like being in a room where people are speaking another language i just completely couldn't understand so
1: they have kind of their own, they have a lot of words that they they can't say like, hey let's hang out it's always like, let's have some fellowship like let's make the, <laughs> the which is accurate because their they're hanging out is probably really dull so fellowship doesn't sound like a lot of fun
2: <laughs> That's yeah fellowship Up until we met Marie, I really just thought all all Christian people were really scary. I mean, they were, like, really scary. Like, they they worship a guy, a dead guy that they hung up on a cross. I mean, Like, the whole concept to me is, you know, like, if someone grew up with Christianity and then said, oh, it's not for me, that's one thing. But to me, it was just, it's so foreign. That's a funny,
1: yeah, that's a funny way to... come at that because it's just like I mean when I grew up it was my mom it was kind of always this thing and when eventually I was just like this is a bunch of bullshit (laughs) it's like I mean like how can anyone logically just be like look at the world today where nothing crazy magical happens and then go yeah that happened yeah that's no it's different time
2: it's like yeah it was really weird like growing up there were Catholic kids on our block In fact, our whole block was Catholic kids. And um, I can remember like these Catholic people, and they were all into Jesus, you know, they loved Jesus or whatever. And I had seen paintings of Jesus and he always was like this long-haired bearded guy, you know, looked like a hippie. (laughs) Yet, if one of their sons, I remember this really well, their son, his hair got long enough that it was touching the top of his ears, which is not very long. And, um, they wouldn't let him sit at the table for for dinner until he got his hair cut like and I can remember some hippie kids bike riding across country and stopping in front of our house and the neighbors coming out and being like, "Get out of here." And I was like, "Why are they upset? They look just like Jesus you know? <laughs> uh,
1: uh that's pretty great one of you, one of your big things on the on, you wanted to do. A lot of environmental type things on your trip, right?
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: And there was—I know, as I can recall, there was two places you wanted to visit and that you didn't get to see. One being right. Were you pretty pissed off at uh, Shane for that? (laughs) Because it was—was it kind of his call on that?
2: Yeah, I was really upset about the mountaintop removal thing because no one knew what was happening then. No one knew what was going on in um, like four hundred and fifty mountains in the Appalachians have been blasted down to ground level like there's not even a hill <laughs> you know they're, they're ground level and people don't realize what's happening there because it's poor communities or whatever you know it's, it's it is, in their opinion what are the, what's the slogan they're taking the coal miner out of coal mining and it's safer and better and that's why it's clean coal because they don't have coal miners down in these holes but in reality they're blasting apart all these mountains, and they're contaminating the water, and um, people are dying of cancer and all this stuff, because these, um, they, they have to wash the coal, and so they have these huge, huge uh, slurry vats, and sometimes, like, the walls will break, and they'll come rolling down the hill, so, I mean, it was really bad, and so I had contacted the people to go there and meet with them, but at that time, I think they they had a website, but they weren't real organized. And so I was getting a lot of different information from different people I was talking to. And I think Shane was worried that we would drive over the mountains because we had no money and that we would end up, you know, everyone that I was talking to, they weren't organized enough to pull it together and they weren't, you know, they were going to blow us off or whatever. And he, I think he was a little bit worried about, kind of communities we might be going into like really poor backwards mountain communities and so he didn't want to do it if we didn't have the money like because we didn't I mean we didn't have gas money or anything we were kind of dependent on you know uh, odd jobs and the kindness of strangers so if there were no odd jobs in a mining town and there was no kindness of strangers because everyone else is like you know eating their dog or whatever you know, it didn't bode well for us, but I was really upset about it at the time.
1: I kind of would like to see that because it's like, you don't get that picture of America. They don't, you don't really, I mean, it was both that and the, the other thing that you didn't get to go to the toxic lake. It's like, I, I kind of vaguely had heard about that. And then after I read it in the book, I, what, what is that lake called?
2: Uh, I can't remember the name of the lake, but we saw it when we were, after my father passed away, we were in Minnesota. We had to go back to Minnesota and, you know, empty his house and all of that stuff. And, um, we drove highway two through Montana on the way back out here. Cause we're on the Oregon coast now. And, um, I was like, Oh, we're going to go by that toxic lake. Maybe this was, you know, two years after the trip. I'm like, maybe we'll have time to pull off and see it when we go through Butte, Montana. And no sooner do I say that, that we come down this mountain pass and there's the skyline of Butte, Montana. And the, the skyline of the city is completely dwarfed by this giant lake of toxic water because it, it was a copper pit mine. And I guess um, it sprung some kind of underground lake or something. And so it filled up, and the um, whatever's left from copper mines is really toxic. And then it mixed with the water. So they actually pay a guy to stand out there and shoot blanks if ducks try to land on this lake because they'll die in, like, 20 seconds or something. Whoa. And so... So I'm thinking, oh, we might see this lake that's tucked away somewhere off the beaten path, but no, it was as big, it was four times as big as the city of Butte, Montana. And they said it's still rising, so eventually the city of Butte will have to be evacuated and it will be underwater too. And here's all this perfectly good, whatever, spring water, whatever, coming up, becoming toxic, you know, as soon as it hits, hits whatever I don't know, the chemical makeup of it or how it all works exactly. but
1: How far is it away from, like, civilized? Are people, like, living down the street from it?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's right there. Like, the shore of that lake is right there at the edge of Butte. And Butte is a. I it's not a huge city, but it had some tall buildings. I mean, it had, you know, a commerce, a downtown and stuff. It was, you know, 10, 12-story buildings and stuff.
1: Did it have... could you smell that lake? I mean, I, I can't imagine it's...
2: No, we couldn't smell anything, which is probably why, you know, ducks and stuff will try to land on it. You know, they'll be flying over and, oh, hey, there's some water, and then they land on it, and it's basically like an acid. So it just eats them alive, I guess.
1: It's amazing how much destruction are is allowed for corporate profit. It's like, I mean... It's like oh. they like blowing up the the mountains, and, and it's like, and yet though, and yet they label environmental activists as terrorists, and it's just like they're not giving thousands of people cancer. So it's like your perspective on who is committing the crimes is very, very off.
2: Yeah, well, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I know you're from Chicago, so maybe you know something about that area, but. That's like a toxic wasteland. The south side there.
1: of Chicago is.
2: Oh yeah, did you not know that?
1: I I didn't. I never journeyed that way. I was always north oh. side.
2: Yeah, if around the lake, around the bottom part of the lake where Indiana and Illinois meet, it's a uh, part of the rust belt, and I mean it's horrible. There were when I grew up, it was all steel mills, and the steel mills are so huge. They're like one steel mills the size of the whole town I live in now, you know, I mean, it's, they're huge, you know, you can't even fathom how big these things are, and um, they totally pollute the ground, and I remember in the 70s a bunch of them closed because, um, whatever, the union workers went on strike, and um, to this day they're still super fun sites, they're still sitting there, Nothing, nothing will grow, and all these huge landmasses it looks like uh, like just desert wasteland. I mean, the south side is unbelievable. It's where all the industry is. I can remember going to the beach as a kid, and there'd be a huge Edison plant on the water on one side of us, and then a whole a big factory on the other side. And the sky would be red at night, at like midnight. The sky would be red. And I remember asking my dad, is that because it's summer and the sun's staying up later? He's like no that's pollution.
1: That's yeah, it's a, it's it's baffling. I just I remember driving into Indiana like out g- crossing into that area and I remember it having a real like just smelled like rotting eggs. It was just a like you could smell it <laughs> from miles.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that's like the chemical companies. I remember Shade and I came back from a road trip many many years ago from the east, I guess, and we were driving through East Chicago, Indiana, on the highway, and all of a sudden there's all these flaggers and these guys in hazmat suits, and they made us get off the highway because we were going to take the Skyway back into the city. And they're like, oh, no, there was a chemical spill in East Chicago, and so the Skyway is closed because there's a cloud of noxious gas on it, so they like redirected us through, you know, these really sketchy, sketchy areas and all these guys in, in these white suits with face masks are waving us around. And we're like, if they're in white suits, should we be worried? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's not alarming at all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but that's how it is. I mean, that's how the South Side is. I can remember people being evacuated all the time from whiting because they have a big oil refinery there and. Oh, God, I can remember driving as a teenager, driving around drinking beer with my sister. And um, there was a big factory not far from our house, and it always had this giant flame coming out of this, um, I don't know, This they had this huge tower that was probably like 50 feet, maybe 100 feet high, and then they had like this 100-foot flame that burned all day. Every day I have no idea what they made there but that flame was always you know going straight up into the sky
1: maybe maybe it was just a memorial for uh, Mayor Daly <laughs> <laughs> Um one of the like you guys it's pretty amazing cuz you went out on the road with 180 bucks and then stayed with unless you were sleeping in your car which must have been and stayed mostly with people you didn't know right I mean, wasn't there any time like you're staying at somebody's house and you're like, they're going to come and kill us? Or was it always, did you always feel comfortable and safe?
2: Um, People were amazingly nice. Like, we had no idea. I mean, coming from our backgrounds and I guess the world we lived in, we really thought it was going to be horrible. But people were wonderful. And like you had asked earlier about people like staying with Christians and stuff it seemed like on the big issues most people agreed On like everyone wants to have a good life everyone wants their family to be safe everyone wants opportunity so we just kinda with some people we just stuck to the things we could agree on the only time i can remember being really scared was in arkansas we went to this west memphis three rally and um, we met this man john g peeler and he told us that he was a cia assassin and that his son had been framed for murder, and he wanted to talk to us on camera. And so we left the rally, and Shane had gotten his number and stuff, and I'm like, that guy is a crazy man that lives under a bridge. You know, there's no way. (laughs) You know, that guy is nuts. So Shane talks to him on the phone, and we go go to talk to him at his house, and he lived in a beautiful, a beautiful home on this hill with a creek going by in the back and an in-ground pool and I was like, oh shit, this guy's for real. He's not a crazy guy under a bridge. And so he invites us in and he's like, "Oh, my wife made this pecan pie." But his we're like, "Where's your wife?" "Oh, she's not here today." And then he's like, "Have some pie." And he cuts Shane and I each a slice of pie and he just sits there and watches us eat it. And I'm thinking, oh no, you know we're gonna you know who knows what's gonna happen to us at this point he's po- and, like, uh,
1: were you thinking he's poisoning you
2: <laughs> i didn't know i'm like, am I gonna wake up in some laboratory or in a cell somewhere you know I mean I just didn't know, and um you know, and I guess I was a little paranoid, and he told us all these stories about killing people for the government and how. He was in Vietnam, and he was, I think, a Green Beret or something. And he showed us photos and stuff. And um, he talked about how if he told the government that he didn't want to do a job, that all of a sudden, like, he said he was in Turkey one time. He had finished the job, and they were like, oh, we have another job for you. Because he would infiltrate, like, the Ku Klux Klan and frame people. He framed some religious leader that they felt was too powerful and stuff. And, um, you know, that's what he did. And so he told us he was in Turkey and they, he said he didn't want to do a job and they were like, okay, fine. And all of a sudden they, the government people left and the Turkish police pulled up and arrested him for murder and threw him in a Turkish prison. And he sat there for like six weeks and then his CIA guy came and was like, so you're going to do that job now? That's fucking
1: crazy. (laughs)
2: Yeah, so I was terrified, and uh, I can remember like he invited us to stay over, and he, I mean his house was beautiful, you know, like he had this beautiful guest room and stuff, and I can just remember laying in bed thinking, "Don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep."
1: <laughs> did you and Shane like have code words to get out of situations, and so you could politely just be like, or did you, or did you just no. suffer through most situations?
2: We typically suffered through, and uh, it really wasn't that much suffering. I mean, people were, like I said, people were really good and, and warm and inviting, and I mean, like, even, like, people, like, we stayed with a few people. There's a lot of hoarders out there, I guess. Do you know this? There's a lot of hoarders. People hoard, I guess. There's I, know, a I know
1: there's a TV show based on it, but I didn't, like, you never know what...
2: Yeah, I had no idea, and so we stayed with a couple people who I would say were hoarders, and, um, like, one couple, they were like, oh, well, you'll stay in our guest room, and then they open this door, and there's this beautiful guest room, (laughs) the rest of their house is, like, packed all this weird stuff everywhere, stuff all over the floor, so we were like, oh, okay, you know, sure, we'll stay in the guest room.
1: I wonder if that just eats at them, that they're like, oh, why do we have to have a, we could fill that with shit <laughs> Yeah, <right.
2: laughs>
1: but your stupid mom has to come
2: visit <laughs> i mean it was full of stuff but i guess it was like you know the good stuff or something you know but but it was bizarre the only place there was one place where we were like you know giving each other the look like we got to get out of here and that was in fresno california and we went to stay with this girl who was like um she was a fan of shane's you know of like you know his publishing work and stuff you know the stuff he published, and, um, so those people are usually a little different, you know, you know, it's, like, like, fans of, like, Gigi Allen or fans of the mentors or whatever. When you get into something so subculture and those, you meet your fans, they're typically pretty bizarre, you know, and, um, but she was a really nice girl. I mean, she was super sweet. I liked her, but she was a really, really bad hoarder. And, like, we go into her apartment, and there's, it was knee-deep in stuff. And so we waved through all this stuff, and um, I sit down on her sofa, and I look down, and it's, like, all brand-new stuff. Like, all this stuff still, had, like, it was, like, beautiful lingerie and high heel shoes and all this stuff that still had tags on it. Like, it was brand-new. She hadn't worn it. But it was just all piled up, and she was like, um, like a sex worker or something, and uh, that was really bizarre. And so we were like, we can't—just too many things really freaked us out, and we were like, let's get out of here. So, so we were—we went to a Motel Six.
1: <laughs> it, it's weird. I mean, I wonder if like hoarding is just solely a, an a, American phenomenon, because it's like I'm pretty sure they're not hoarding in India.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. I think it's a Western thing
1: because it's we are we're sort of brainwashed to consume.
2: Yeah. You know, I saw this television show one time from Britain and uh, they were helping this guy get rid. He had all these collections of stuff like he collected. I don't know. He had like five different collections of stuff. And the lady was like, do you know, collecting is a mental illness. It's you. You collect because you're not doing something else you want to be doing. She's like, "What do you really want to be doing?" He's like, "Well, I I can't remember. I used to play guitar." And so she got rid of all his collections and got him like a couple guitars or something. And so I think maybe it's partially that, and I think maybe it's just we're such a consumer culture. You know, we've become such a consumer culture. I mean, consuming is is what is culturally relevant to us. If you think about, it, there's no art movements happening you know, like major ones. There's no, there's just so much stuff that in history would have been happening, but people just go to the shopping mall now. They just consume.
1: Yeah, it's 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 so weird that people just equate that with uh, happiness. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, it's like I mean, even in our even in our music, it's uh, buy this, buy that, tap a lot of asses. <laughs> it's like it's like that's not gonna bring you happiness, motherfuckers.
2: But yeah, it's it's so weird. It's like, I don't know. Like, I guess because Shane and I lost everything. We've, we've been uh, gathering a lot of stuff. But I mean, we're not really paying anything. Like, you know, we'll go to garage sales or we'll get stuff for free. We're like, are we becoming hoarders? We're always <laughs> worried <laughs> because of our experience on the road, I guess. But it seems like I can remember being a, uh, like a preteen. And what did you do for fun? You went to the mall. We all went to the mall. We didn't have any money, but we still went to the mall and looked at the stuff we couldn't buy. That, yeah, that's. So I,
1: that's. I never, I never got into the mall thing. I was always like, I was always like, why are we like hanging out here? This is weird. I have no mm-hmm. money.
2: <laughs> it's weird, you know. And I think about like people who lived in communities where maybe they did have the money to shop, you know, which of course I didn't. But um, I guess that's where hoarding comes from. Just. I don't know. It's such a weird phenomenon. It's like, Shane and I were talking about it. Maybe it's something to do with um, like people being afraid of the end of the world or something. They want to make sure they have enough stuff on hand. I don't know. Oh, but like it's,
1: it's a, a weird sort of, the survival mechanism got subverted. <laughs> it's like,
2: yeah. like a, It's like a mutation of, I know hunter gathering.
1: That's an interesting uh, concept. Now, one of the ways you guys survived is uh, you took out these ads where you cleaned. You would clean strangers' homes, which is also because I know there's the one time where the guy he wanted to be naked while you do it, but and he asked for your boobies to be up, but you said no.
2: Right, right, yeah, that was quite an experience. I know.
1: That's a very brave thing, because I would be like, uh, I think I'm gonna pass on this one. Or was it like you guys had so little money that you're like, I have to clean this guy's house with his dick out?
2: Oh yeah, we we were flat broke, and um, it's weird, you know. In Louisville, Kentucky, they say keep Louisville weird, and they really mean it because <laughs> we would put these ads up: trade wife, we'll trade husband, you know. And you have to put on Craigslist; it's a non-sexual ad, you know. And so I would put like all the things that Shane does, you know, like he did um, some plumbing work in Knoxville, Tennessee or whatever. And, and I did a lot of, um, mostly it was a lot of cleaning and like yard stuff. And I, the other choices I had at that time, there was a trucker who wanted to wear pantyhose and have me put makeup on him. And then we would wrestle. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And then there were some others that were even more bizarre than that, you know, that I conveniently blacked out. And I was like, (laughs) I'm not doing any of those things. I'm like cleaning for a naked guy. What the hell do I care if he's naked? So I was like, sure, I'll come and do it. And um, the weird part was I got to his house and it was super clean. And so I was like, he must have people come and clean while he's naked like three times a week or something. But he was really nice, and he had really good cleaning products. And, uh, <laughs> that's good. That, that's good. <laughs> but um, it was funny because he was like, "Well, do you want to be topless? You know, would you consider taking your clothes off while you clean?" And I was like, "No, I'm not going to do that." And he was like, "Well, what do you? What is okay for me to do?" I'm like, "You do whatever you want to do as long as you're not touching me. I don't care." And he's like, okay, do so you don't mind if I pleasure myself or whatever? I'm like, I don't care. So he jerked off a couple times while he watched the Dukes of Hazard movie. <laughs> and I cleaned. And so, and Shane was out in the car the whole time, like, you know, whatever in the parking lot, but it was bizarre. I mean, I was a little bit like when his house was real clean. And when I got there, I was a little bit nervous, but, um, I think that was like the weirdest job. Like two days later, I worked at a gun show in Kentucky. I demonstrated this thing, the fast holster. It's like this, um, magnetic strip and you can mount it like behind your headboard or under a table and your gun will just hang from it. Cause it's the super powerful magnet. And so like someone breaks in, you just reach behind your headboard and you're armed, you know? And, um, the two guys that ran the company were really nice and, and, you know, they were like, you guys need a gun. We're going to give you a gun. And I'm like, I don't want a gun. And Shane said, I don't want a gun. And so then I, throughout the day, you know, we're like trading stories or whatever. And I told them that I had cleaned for a naked guy two days before. And like their whole personality changed. Like in their eyes, I was a prostitute at that point. And I was like, Oh God, I really said the wrong thing. (laughs)
1: Well, that's good. They want to give guns and they, they're they the ones. That's, that's what the amazing thing is, is that, uh, you know, with all the gun trouble in this country, that they could just give guns away is a little uh, disconcerting.
2: Well, they were just so worried about us. They felt like we were going to get killed traveling. And uh, Shane told them that if he had a gun, he might not listen to uh, his conscience or his intuition, you know, he might, st- if we got into a bad situation, we might stay a few minutes longer than we should because we, we get overconfident because we had a gun. And so we didn't want a gun because of that. Cause we just wanted to stick with our instincts. And if things felt creepy, get the hell out, you know,
1: that's a very insightful point, uh, Shane made there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. You
1: married a smart yeah. fella.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, he was pretty good about that.
1: Yeah, that there, there was the one interesting thing uh, about the book is how uh, Shane said that it he felt ashamed that it took him thirteen years to realize about the like all the love that he wanted to give and get that you two could have between you two that, that sort of that and I which my point was like it, most people don't ever realize that like how fortunate you are to have discovered that. And was that sort of, was that this same discovery for you as well? Or were you ahead of him on that one? <laughs> Cause women <laughs> tend to be a little bit more uh, in tune with that sort of thing.
2: Um, I think, you know, I think all, all, uh, problems aside, you know, that I had growing up, I knew that my parents loved me or whatever. And I don't think Shane had that same feeling from his parents. So we got along great, and then we got married. And marriage really changes how people are with each other. It's really weird. Like, no matter how smart and forward-thinking you are, you think, oh, I'm not going to fall into this. But you do. All of a sudden, there's all this, like, societal pressure put on you. Oh, I'm not just a girlfriend. I'm a wife. And Oh, I'm not just a, a... boyfriend I'm a husband and so there was all of a sudden when we got married was like things changed completely like Shane was sleeping on the couch to protect the house and like things just got really bizarre and so we had been through these tumultuous times but um I think Shane was always looking for for more love you know like he was always like he was always trying to save these girls or whatever like we did an entertainment paper in Chicago and we dealt with a lot of strippers and escorts. And he would always like be trying to save these girls or help them out. And I'd be like, you know, what are you doing? You know?
1: (laughs) You're really trying to save yourself, Shane. That's what you're doing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, so I think, I think it was a long time coming for him. You know, I think that was a lot of a revelation for him. I mean, I, I don't know, I guess, at the point we got together, I was pretty, I had seen a lot and I had experienced a lot of the world or whatever to a certain point. And so I was really happy to be, uh, dedicated to someone, like to really build a life with them. And I think that Shane was still searching for something more, like he always wanted something more. And so I think, I think that was really a big revelation for him, you know?
1: That's a hard thing to, uh, I mean, that's because re- I, th- I have that same sort of, I don't know if it's a drive or disease, but <laughs> it's like I'm always searching for something more and I'm, it's really hard to be in that, in the moment because your mind sort of is always, and I think that's also probably partly the product of, uh, abuse and whatnot because your, your brain is always looking for, Defend Like, you, you're always playing different angles because you don't want to get beat up again. So your mind is constantly, is trained to just kind of always be looking at every fucking angle and trying to get, it's like, drilled thrilled hard, as you probably know.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, like a couple of years ago, like when we were on the beach after the road trip, and like Shane was having those revelations, oh, I think maybe three years ago or something, he gave me trust as a gift. And, uh, like, our relationship has been great ever since that, the whole road trip, that experience, because I think it really brought us together. And so we've gotten along the, like, these last four years since that road trip have been the best years of our marriage because of that. And so, so it's really nice. I think it was hard for Shane because his, there was no trust in his family growing up. You know, his parents were pretty scandalous and so he just could not he could not trust and I think he was always waiting for like like you say the other shoe to drop or whatever and I think also just with society men are supposed to be you know always conquering you know I think there's maybe it's something in the whatever still in the brain from you know prehistoric times that they're supposed to be conquering and I think uh, society and like like we we're talking about the consumerism makes people makes men especially feel they need to constantly be conquering you know women or or something you know like some there's always gotta be something more you know over the next hill kind of thing you know and and now with women being more in the workforce and stuff i think it's you see it happening with women too
1: it, it yeah <laughs> I was deciding on different. No, the big one of the big things you guys talked about is, is like voting, and uh, did did you feel like any of your what were the there was the questions you would ask was like uh, if it's important to vote and about freedom? Did you are you a voter? Were you a voter?
2: Um, I voted a couple times in elections when I was first eligible to vote. I think I voted for Bill. Clinton the first time he ran because I didn't like Bush and Reagan. And then I voted the second time when he ran for reelection, I voted for Ross Perot. So that was pretty much all my voting experience because at that point I was like, we completely don't matter in voting. I mean, there's an electorate college. And before our road trip, I started doing a lot of research on what exactly the electorate college is because you know you hear about it and you know it exists but what is it how is it chosen and somehow I had it in my mind that the electorate college was like random voters like we're gonna pick you know like kinda like a lottery these 100 people whoever they voted for is who we're gonna pick or whatever and I didn't realize the electorate college is completely appointed and it's appointed by the people in office by our elected officials, so of course they're going to appoint the people who are going to keep them in office. So that was a real shock for me to find that out. You know, so I was really uh disgruntled with voting. I mean you know, look at the elections we've had where like what's his name, Gore won but didn't win and
1: Yeah, that was uh I don't yeah, I've been it's And it's also, I just don't, I personally, it's like when you tell people you don't vote, they get really fucking pissed off. And in a lot of ways, I feel like not voting is a vote, though I've always voted. Uh, but, you know, like Jill Stein or something. It's like... Yeah, right. But it's... That's
2: who I voted for this time.
1: It's, um, but it's like, I don't really see much of a difference between... That. People are bought into the marketing of Obama, but there's not really that huge of a difference in my opinion between the two parties. They're both corporately owned. They're both warmongers. And it's just it seems that they could get away with more when it's a for to falsely use the word a liberal president. (laughs) Because it's Obama's not liberal at all. Maybe he is maybe is when he gets out of office, but his actions are not.
2: Not at all. I thought when he ran, I was hopeful. I mean, I didn't vote for him, but I was hopeful because I thought, well, he's a constitutional attorney and his wife is from the south side of Chicago and she, you know, worked her way up. And so maybe they'll be really, really forward thinking, but they weren't. They're they're the same old. I and mean, those two parties are exactly the same. It doesn't matter. Like people were all up in arms this last year oh, well, you got to vote for Obama. And I thought, why? It doesn't matter. They're the same person. I mean, Romney might be, you know, he might I guess he would have some more colorful sound bites or whatever. You know? But they were, uh, they're the same. They're the exact same thing.
1: Yeah, I, it you was know? really weird because people would always say how, like, well, it's like abortion, abortion, you got to vote for abortion. It's like, I agree. That's a, that's a very important thing that we need to vote on was like, there's other civil liberties that are being lost under these guys, under Obama, and I don't think people realize that, and I can't help but think that they just, that whole, the abortion is one of those topics that just could, you know, it's it's like Chick-fil-A. It's like, look over here, look over here, while well, and then they run around and do all kinds of awful, it's smoke screening.
2: Oh, right. Right. Like Shane was saying, well, your vagina is protected, but the rest of you is going to be indefinitely detained, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's so it's such a mess. The whole system in America is such a mess. I was really hopeful that they would all just uh, that it was all a scam and they would just clean out the, the Federal Reserve and all the politicians would leave and go somewhere else, you know, and just leave us all here to die. And then, like, maybe something good could happen, but, um, I don't know. It seems like the system is just so so messed up, like people even who get into office, like look at like Ron Paul or Dennis Kucinich, who really are progressive, you know they're they're not listened to the stuff that they introduce into Congress doesn't get voted in you know it's it's so like this whole insurance thing it's like mandatory auto insurance who does that benefit if you get the basic auto insurance are you benefiting yourself no because it's 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 uh you're not covered you're just co- you, the other person's covered if you get in a car wreck and so i thought well with mandatory health insurance we won't really be covered but the hospital or whoever will be insured of getting paid it's not that we're going to get good care
1: but they're gonna get some money at least, rather than getting none. Yeah, that's you know? that's a valid. Uh, it's yeah. I was I read something this morning about uh, they're saying how this is kind of fucked. That you know the the Senate, the Congress are gonna be. They're all lame duck dudes, a large majority of them, and they're the ones deciding our future for the coming months. And it's like, why should they be allowed to vote on these things? They clearly don't give a fuck because they're on to d- other things. So it's like who's who are they going to think that's why they voted for resistance it's just like who they they're going to answer to their corporate buddies not the people because they don't have they don't have to worry about anything anymore
2: oh right i mean well they're totally covered they have lifetime health care and they've got you know this incredible income forever you know i don't know you know
1: are you I don't know. are you uh after all these talking to all these people and uh are you hopeful or do you think we're fucked?
2: Both. <laughs> I'm hopeful about the people. I think the people, you know, uh, if if we would, like, we haven't had a television in years, so, you know, I don't know what's going on in, in the news. I just, re- you know, I'll read stuff online, but it's stuff of my choosing. But I hear, like, all these people, like, People were going crazy a couple of years ago about the tea party and all their, their wacko ideas and people were going crazy about Occupy and their wacko ideas. But like, if you talk to these people, they're all basically wanting the same thing. You know, they're wanting opportunity. They're wanting representation. They're wanting things to be a little fairer. And, um, like every every kind of movement like that's going to have wackos. It just seems like that's who the news media seeks out to talk to. So I think if it came down to the people, people are, are essentially good, and people want the same things, whether they're Christian or, or atheist or you know, liberal or conservative. We just want security and opportunity and things like that. Um, as far as the government, it's hopeless. I mean, there's so... You know, I mean, I think I think all this—the fiscal cliff—that's just like a fear fear word to scare people. I think all these things, all the all this um, fighting between the two parties is all fake, just to keep things from moving forward. You know, I don't believe any of that stuff. I
1: agree. That I interviewed a guy recently. Well, or actually con- had a conversation with a guy who produced produced a this documentary, and he said he spent time in. D.C. and he said the most shocking thing that he discovered is that the Democrats and Republicans, like publicly, they talk about the how they infight and the difference. It's like behind the scenes, it's all who has the money, who doesn't. He's like that's all there is: who has power, who has money, nothing else matters.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if you look at you know who's funding their campaigns, I mean, it's 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 the corporate, the corporate country. One of the people we interviewed, Dave Archer, he said how how Mussolini invented the term fascism and he defined it as corporatism, as government and corporations and collusion. And that's really where we are now. I mean, maybe we don't have stormtroopers on the street yet, but... Uh, you know, that's really, got, the corporations are running everything. You know, they're the ones mowing down the rainforest or whatever, you know, blasting mountains apart. They're the ones doing all this stuff. You know, we're going to have um, austerity, and they're going to cut people off of unemployment, you know, in, like, next week or whatever. But the corporations are still getting tons and tons of money. I mean, where we live here, they're testing drones. We live by a military base. Wow. And uh, a couple of times Shane and I have heard stuff we're like, was that a drone? You know, like they were blasting something last week. I mean, you know.
1: That's that would that's disturbing. <laughs> Can you get like pellet guns and shoot at the drones?
2: <laughs> yeah, a lot of good that would do. <laughs> you know, but I mean who's who's building the drones? It's not the government, it's private corporations. You know, that's why we keep these wars perpetuated to keep people producing you know, warheads and we've been in a
1: state of some kind of war for over a hundred years, be it cold or drug or now terror. And it's just like, it's a load of shit.
2: Exactly. That was something I would ask people on our road trip. If someone was talking about, you know, peace and getting out of the war, I'm like, well, have we ever, has there ever been a time where there has been peace in the world? World does world peace ever exist? And, um, one guy we talked to is like a libertarian. He said that, uh, that he had read somewhere that there was like a hundred years of peace in the last like 5,000 years, but none of the, none of the years were, um, connected, you know, they, they were all like apart or just periods of time maybe that added up to that amount of time
1: like a day here and a day there there's <laughs> yeah, it never even a consistent whole year which would even make more sense actually
2: exactly so i don't know It just seems like one of those things that's gonna happen you know well, i could go crazy talking about that stuff you know i try to I don't know. i try to avoid politics and you know i guess that's crazy to say with the book and everything but
1: it's good thing you avoided politics for a year of your life in a car
2: but we but we really did we didn't we never talked about the candidates you know when we talked to people we never talked about you know who or was running or the parties or anything we talked to people about i think what was what was like the root of the issues we would ask you know do you vote why or why not um is there such thing as free speech you know is is revolution possible we have a list of like five really simple questions best and worst thing about america and um... people some people would scoff at those questions as being simplistic but then some people really i think understood and you know like they were like wow that's one lady told me that's a loaded question when i asked her best and worst thing about america you know it is if you think about it you it's know.
1: interesting because when I. Because it is simple, but I think that's what is brilliant about those questions is because the first time I saw it in the book, I was like, yeah what like it made me I was like, what is if how would I answer this and the entire time I'm reading the book, I kept an- like thinking like is that your answer are you gonna change your <laughs> like it was it, the the book really definitely and the documentary they both provoke a lot of thought and I Shane asked me at the end of the, inter, the his interview there, he was like did you really like it or is that your L A bullshit saying you liked it <laughs> which by the way I'm yeah. really not involved in L A so but uh, uh and I wish to be less and less so as my life continues but and I did I I felt like it was a very important and timely uh book and it's like very it really made me think and question a lot of the preconceived notions I have of things. I think that's I mean that's quite the achievement you I think you you two did.
2: Wow, well thank you.
1: Hey, you're welcome.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was it was a really interesting experience to realize, you know, like like listening to people answer those questions really changed my perspective on a lot of things because I guess what I went into the trip thinking maybe was the best and worst thing about america i didn't come out of the trip thinking you
1: know that's a pretty remarkable what is there anything because we'll probably be wrapping up here is there anything that you wanted to address about the the the, the experience or if anything you felt uh, did we miss anything um sleeping in a car with shane i hear he's very gassy
2: <laughs> that's true that's true that was, you know those were probably the worst parts is like uh we would be stuck. we would be in between staying with people sometimes and so we would be we would do all night at kinko's and we would take turns napping in the car and one of us would be in kinko's working you know either editing video or writing or contacting people in the next town and then um, there were times we'd sleep in um the uh like rest stops and stuff and those those were like the worst times like those those were the times where you look back at the dog and she's like are we really doing this you know <laughs> giving us the skeptical look cuz you know we had our dog and our turtle and a turtle
1: us. how does one t- t- travel with a turtle that's what I wanted to ask earlier and forgot to
2: um we had the mobile Myrtle unit which was a 5 gallon pickle bucket and uh that Shane got for free from Burger King. He like called up a Burger King, was like, "Hey, you got any five-gallon buckets around?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." So Myrtle traveled in that. And then when we would stay with people, she would go like in their bathtub or their sink or something or whatever, you know. So and if we were in a motel, she could walk around the motel and stuff. That's really. cool. Oh,
1: wow. it's it's great that you go on a road trip with a dog and a turtle.
2: I know people. I guess Myrtle was looking pretty bad by the end. You know, she wasn't getting enough light and uh probably not eating enough, so but uh she's just you know, she's still with us. So yeah, that's,
1: that's good. Well thank you very much, Amy. And what are the uh the it's USA dot com is where they can buy the book and the movie?
2: Yeah, USA dot com. And then um the official release is inauguration day January 21st. So then the regular edition will be available. Right now it's a um, collectors edition. Ooh. Two collectors editions.
1: Shane didn't say that. Bad, bad Oh
2: yeah, yeah, there's a one has a hand drawn book plate in it with a dog and a turtle print on it and stuff. And that's the soft cover and then the other one is a hard cover and Shane's we, Shane's doing 23 of those and it has like um Work on the cover
1: they're beautiful thank you for listening to conversations with Matt Dwyer if you enjoyed the show please donate and or if you don't have any dough uh, you can uh, buy stuff through the Amazon web link there on the feralaudio.com page hey can you hear my dog this motherfucker just won't let me record these days um here's my dog Making whiny noises, uh, but uh, also follow me on Twitter, Matt_Dewire, at the old Twitterist there, and check out all of the other shows at FeralAudio.com. We do are, we we are doing some really great shows. So I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, I'll just keep.
0: the United States government. It is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. Oh, the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on
1: feralaudio.com.